the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And Craig Roberts here to say hello. Welcome. Good to have you with us for this Wednesday April 26th edition of Lifeline. Just uh, here at the midpoint of the week, you're doing well and uh, always honored to be able to spend some time with you as we will do so again on today's program. We've got some things to discuss um, with a bit of gravitas a little bit later on in the show. You've probably heard that the um, state of California, the governor, our governor, declared an end to our state-level emergency of COVID. That was back on February the 28th. Coming up in just about two weeks, the federal state of emergency will cease. That'll be on May 11th. But is COVID over with? I think if we took a survey, we'd all agree we're over COVID. But is COVID over us? There's new reports coming out of India of, albeit perhaps less severe, but nevertheless a highly transmittable form of COVID that's beginning to emerge. So do we need to not worry about it? Is the pandemic essentially over with? We're going to get some insights a little bit later on in the program. We'll be joined by Professor Dr. John Schwartzberg to uh, give us some further insights. But I want to begin tonight's program with a bit of a contrast and comparison with um, what was life like for our parents raising us, if you're the baby boomer generation, and what it means for the baby boomer generation to be raising their children. Boy, talk about a difference. I mean, for example, back in the 1950s, when our parents were largely kids, the issues that their parents of the uh, great generation had to deal with was, well, the influence of television, right? Too much of the Lone Ranger, staying up late at night, getting home from school and watching Howdy Doody, just too much time in front of TV. Then, of course, there were other more pressing concerns like peer pressure, peer pressure at school. Oh, my goodness. In 1953, there was a survey done of teachers across the country asking, what are some of the big worries that you have? And Topping the list included things like chewing gum, running in the hallway, and failing to turn in homework on time. Oh, my, 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 they had it rough. <laughs> Let's fast forward, if we can, from the mid-1950s to 2023. Now what do parents have to worry about? The extreme influence of social media pressure that's getting children to behave in all kinds of outlandish ways. That's replaced gum chewing, running in the hallways to now either running with a round crowd, getting involved in a gang or perhaps being stalked by a pedophile. 
And, of course, running in the hallways has been replaced by guns in the hallways or altogether just simply failing to show up for school. Yep, I think we can easily conclude that raising a child today has changed vastly. How does a parent respond to all this? Do you need a battle plan in place? Because it certainly seems as if we're at war, and many would articulate it. We're at war for the very heart and soul of our nation as it comes to our nation's children and the future. Let's get a look at some of these issues. The author of The Parents' Battle Plan, Warfare Strategies to Win Back Your Prodigal, newly published by Chosen Books. Joining us is best-selling author Lane Lawson-Craft. And Lane, great to have you on the program. Craig, that was a great introduction. Wow. Wow. What can we say to that? Boy, times have changed, have they? (laughs) Have they indeed? Incredible. (laughs) I mean, what a great way to show people how powerfully urgent what we're talking about tonight is. All right. Let's let's dig in. Uh, You've written this book. And, of course, um, you have a podcast. Um, you encourage women around the globe on how to deal with these modern-day challenges that uh, every parent is facing. And so give us some insight, even in the rearing of your own um, three kids with your husband, Steve. Um, as we look at some of the, the big challenges these days, what is it in your estimation, Lane, that, that perhaps challenges and frustrates parents the most? Well, and listen, I want you to include grandparents. So many of the baby boomers are raising their children's children, Craig. This is true. So so this is really big. I mean, um, I don't know if you're seeing these new studies where parents are still paying for 60-plus percent of adults' bills, even vacations. So uh, we, um, we are forever... You know, parenting children and our children's children. Amen? Crazy. TV issue was a problem in my home, too. And I was born late enough that we were fortunate enough to have a, a TV set in the living room. And then I had my own TV in my bedroom, although it uh, this will date me. It was black and white and had rabbit ears. And and I remember at one point my father getting fed up with my sneaking up uh, after bedtime and turning the TV set back on. Of course, he could see the glow of the set from underneath <laughs> the bedroom door. So he had a surefire and semi-permanent solution. He came in one night and said, young man, we've had this discussion. You continue to break the rules. So there's a way I'm going to fix this, and we're going to fix it permanently. With that, he wheeled the TV set away from the wall, unplugged it, pulled out a pair of scissors, and cut the cord right at the very back of the set. That ended that. Wouldn't parents today and grandparents wish it were that easy when it comes to things like cutting children off from the influence of of social media. Let's talk a bit about that. We are hearing yeah, stories about, for yeah. example, these TikTok challenges. A young boy the other day, the age of 16, Lane, died from an overdose of, of all things, allergy medication because he saw a TikTok challenge and decided to consume in one day the equivalent of one month's worth of antihistamine and his body literally shut down. How do we deal with this? Yes, and I like to say, Craig, our children today are one click away from what you're talking about, and that is death. So, so with the iPhone, with phones, kids can now 
click one bad picture or receive one bad picture. They can click and, and bully somebody so much that they become suicidal. So back in the day when we had a TV in our room, that was simple. Yes, mom and dad could cut the cord and pull it out. But today, our children have technology everywhere. And I believe with everything in me, that is the root of so many of these issues that are are, are just luring our children in to utter darkness. You know, it, it used to be, as I suggest, easy for dad to... Uh to cut the cord, but what about the notion of the need today? Because let's face it, to a degree, it's difficult to take these tools away. We say take the cell phone away, but now we can't communicate with the kids if there's an emergency or they needed to do research, homework, even use it for a calculator. Is the approach from a parenting standpoint undergoing a paradigm shift where if we can't take it away, at least we need to really, at a very early age, begin to coach children, train them, educate them on the dangers to watch out for and what to avoid and and how to see the internet as a helpful tool and be able to avoid the areas that are so dangerous? Exactly. And so in the book, I talk about evicting enablement. So many of the parents are asking, you know, Lane, what do I do? I mean, I've got a kid that's uh, unruly. I've got a kid that's defiant and maybe, maybe depressed. What do I do? And so the first thing I coach parents to do in this book is, is first, Get with your kids and say, look, we're going to talk about what's necessity and a luxury. So, you know, we're, we're supposed to give our kids a bed and food and water. Uh, what we need to show the children is that when they have an iPhone, sports, uh, you know, all kinds of extracurricular activities, those are luxuries. So how we can begin kind of creating a different culture in our home, creating a shift, Craig, from being our kid's best friend into being a parent that loves them so much that they don't want them to get in dangerous situations. Um, we can begin a discussion, just as you said, very early on and say, hey, listen, I love you. And I want you to know that I'm going to give you food and I'm going to create a warm place for you to be home. But beyond that, I want you to know there are dangers out there. And many of them come from this one thing, this phone that you're going to carry. And you just start that communication very early, Craig, because I failed at that. I was on the cusp. I don't know about you, but uh, my kids were right on the cusp of iPhones or, or any kind of phone that they would carry cellular phones. And I did not prepare my kids properly. I didn't tell them, you may get some very dirty information on your phone. I, I didn't prepare them that they're one click away from one bad choice or being bullied online. So I, I really ask parents. That's why I keep saying it's an urgent message. Because not only is there a lot of darkness that lures our children into technology, but now we've got this one pill. We've got fentanyl poisoning. And this is happening to good kids, Craig. These are happening to kids that are in pre-law or med school. You know, they're tired and a friend says, hey, I've got something that'll help you sleep after these exams and they don't wake up. They're dead. So just so many things for parents today. And is it important, in your opinion, Lane, for parents to sort of rethink the way they engage with their children? And I ask that question, and in all fairness to parents listening, many of whom are you know, two-parent family, both holding down jobs, in many cases, single-parent family that's struggling to make ends meet and keep up with everything, responsibilities of being a parent, a breadwinner, a provider, a disciplinarian, all of that. And so sometimes... 
I think parents under all of that time pressure uh, sort of um, how should we say they 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 sort of move into the mode of well let me just tell you the way it is and if I'm forceful enough about it it should get the message through and so I have to wonder though on young people today when you want to help them understand some of these dangers is there a preference over the communication style in other words diatribe or dialogue Sure there is. And listen, I I just want to reaffirm, like I said, any parent or grandparent today, listen, the culture tells us, Craig, to be our children's best friend. You know, everybody says, oh, you got to be your kid's best friend. This is what I say. In one of the chapters of my book, I say, listen, I want you to be close to your kid. Of course I do, because that's where communication begins. But we must, as parents, continue to let the children know we have authority. We have the last word. If we don't adjust that and put that back in sync, then we're just really, we're chasing our tail. Because really, we want to establish with our children boundaries and and a communication that works, that is going to make them a thriving adult. You know, when they have a boss, they're going to have to surrender and submit to some some type of you know uh, expectation so we as parents if we continue to allow them to live outside what our faith and values are and continue to fund it and give them phones and let them do everything then we're only creating a place where they're going to continue to do self-destructive and possible um, you know really wrong choices Craig. Yeah and and, you know listening to you share Lane it strikes me that uh, as we get old Older in life, and everybody who's in their fifties and sixties and, and, and heading into retirement thinks this: you hope that your kids will be there for you. You'd like to think that that young boy or young girl that you brought into the world will one day be your best friend, particularly as you moved into stages of life where you need that. But if you want your kids to be your best friend later in life, you need to be their best parent when they're younger. Um, As Lane points out, they'll have plenty of time to form friendships, some lasting, some not so. But if the real priority is when the time comes and you need your kid, you want them there for you, you need them to be your friend at that stage in life, follow me now, then do your best when they're younger. Don't try to be their best friend. Just be their best parent. And I believe if you do that, by the time you reach the age where you need them, they'll be there for you. Lane Lawson Craft with us today, a new book called The Parents Battle Pan Warfare Strategies to Win Back Your Prodigal, newly published by Chosen Books, and you'll find it at the usual suspects, um, Amazon.com, also through Lane's website at lanelawsoncraft.com. We take a brief time out. When we come back, how to go about building trust between yourself and your child. That is our conversation with best-selling author Lane Lawson Craft continues here on Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Oh boy, are we presenting the shorthand or a reader's digest version of Lane Lawson's new book in our discussion today. And we'll have to have her back on for a more protracted and in-depth conversation. But we're discussing the whole issue of parenting and the parents' battle plan, a battle plan to bring back 
Prodigal Children, again, newly released by Chosen Books. And, Lane, one of the big issues, kind of jumping around here for the sake of time, one of the big issues that many parents struggle with is the trust factor. And there are differences of viewpoint, opinion, communication, understanding, kids talk over our heads. I mean, uh, you know, it, it's it's the same challenge that so many parents face, and particularly for the parent that's eavesdropping on our conversation right now who's made some mistakes. Maybe they they thought the I'll-be-my-child's-friend approach would work. Now they're finding its actual utter dismal failure. And they say, you know, to, to get back to that place where we can have communication and dialogue, I need to build trust. But I don't know how to do that. Give us some insights from your experience. Well, I would love to just start. You know, trust is something that is a foundation. It is something that you build upon. And, um, you know, monitoring our children is normal. I mean, we, you know, we monitor where they're spending their money, right? We monitor them when they're dating someone and making sure that they're not spending too much time and all of those things. But what we want to talk about, because there's so many out there that have been betrayed, and I was one of them, uh, Craig. Um, one of my kids just continually uh, would be caught in lies, would backslide, and it's very frustrating. You're almost becoming, you know, uh, Sherlock Holmes at that point. You start spying and you start saying, what is my kid really up to so I can prevent them from getting hurt? Uh, Well, I want to tell parents and grandparents today, uh, you know what? Spying beyond your boundary is only going to set you up for a false expectation that they're in the right road. And what I mean, Craig, I would ask Stephen's friends, I'd say, you know, did y'all really go to this place last night? You know, where did you really go? And I would get the lies fed to me, and I had a false truth there. So I just want to tell you right now, um, it's okay to sit down with your kid. And I do believe in contracts. I do believe we're in a day-to-day that we can't have gray with our kids anymore. Where you sit down and you say, hey, look, you've betrayed me. You've told me some lies, and I think we needed to start over. And let's, let's sit down and say, what are... What can I do to help you make better choices? And you start saying, I want your passwords to this. I want to be able to put this app. You know, we talk about technology being a lure for our children, but technology can also help us as parents and grandparents. You know, track them. Make sure they're really at that party to make sure they're really where they're supposed to be. Uh, But again... We don't need to cross over that. The only time I tell parents, Craig, to cross over that is if you think your child's in danger. If you think in your gut that something's not right, you have every right to, you know, do whatever you need to do to get to your kid and find the answers. Is it important from your perspective also, Lane, for parents to know who their kids are hanging out with? And I don't mean in a, in a you know, overbearing, creepy way. But, for example, when, when I was a kid, where are you going? With whom? When will you be back? If you're going over to a friend's house, my father would make the effort to say, oh, that'll be great. I'd like to get to know so-and-so's mother, father. Please give me their phone number. And there would be a communication and dialogue so that the parents knew exactly what goes, what went on. And my capacity to pull a fast one, you know, a ruse, oh, I'm going over to so-and-so's house when, in fact, I'm going to a party or something, was greatly hampered just by the fact that 
dad was connected and knew who all of the cast of characters were. Is that important? Absolutely. Two of my three children, I am convinced, were one person changed their course. One bad influence. One was Stephen, and he was shown porn at 12, 13 years old. And he is convinced today that that was the gate that the enemy used for him to go down a 15-year journey of drugs, alcohol, womanizing, and all that. My other son, Lawson, went around some one guy that was into these crazy concerts, uh, walkaroo kind of things. And, and I'm convinced if you as a parent or grandparent know that a kid, that your kid is hanging around, is is destructive and, and going to impact your child, you have every every right to say, listen, I love you so much. And this kid is not a good influence. And I just cannot sit by on my watch and watch you go down this. Um, it's, 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 a, it's, it's very powerful. Uh, I know a lot of parents are fearful that their kid is going to be mad or, or, or rebel even further. But really, if it comes out of love, Craig, if you sit down with them and go, I love you so much that I, I'm convinced that this kid is going to bring trouble in your life. Um, you know, I cannot watch you continue to go down this journey. I, I believe with everything in me, they're going to pick up your love and discernment. So it really is important early on to establish who the parent is and to set barriers or establish boundaries. Absolutely. I can remember, I don't know about you, Craig, but my parents, when I would say I'm going to spend the night with someone, I'd be 14, 15, 16. They would call the parents and say, is Lane actually invited? I mean, there's nothing wrong with this. Uh, this is just showing your kids, I love you enough to almost make a fool of yourself as a parent, you know? Because this is kind of contra to our culture. Our culture is let them go. Let them be free. But let me tell you something. That doesn't work in real life. That doesn't bring an adult that's thriving. If they're just going to do whatever, that's not going to happen at work. That can't happen at college. So, you know, it's only, it's only helping them stay in a path to where they can live their best life. Well put. And, of course, a lot more in-depth knowledge and understanding available inside the pages of The Parents' Battle Plan, Warfare Strategies to Win Back Your Prodigal. Published by Chosen Books. You can find it at Amazon.com, all the other usual suspects, Bay Area bookstores, as well as through Lane's website, Lane, L-A-I-N-E, LaneLawsonCraft.com. Lane, thanks so much for the time. We look forward to getting you back on again when we can dive even deeper into this critically important topic for every parent and grandparent today. The Parents' Battle Plan, Warfare Strategies to Win Back Your Prodigal by Lane Lawson Craft. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right. Welcome back to the conversation. Well, as I mentioned at the top of the program tonight, back on the 28th of February, Governor Gavin Newsom declared California's almost exactly three-year-long state of emergency related to COVID would end. Now, at the federal level, the president has signed a similar order ending the federal-level state of emergency related to COVID on May the 11th. And while seemingly this signals an end of the pandemic, maybe a return to life as normal, 
we're certainly witnessing fewer and fewer people reporting illness related to COVID, fewer and fewer people wearing face masks. Seems to be time to go back to life as normal, or is it? Let's get an update right now as the World Health Organization has its eye on yet another COVID variant. It's being dubbed Arcturus on social media, and the World Health Organization says it's a subvariant of Omicron and is the dominant variant currently in India. The variant is behind a wave of sickness in India that's mostly mild, but it's also been seen in the United States and 31 other countries. Who recommends countries share information about the new variant and test how well immunity defends against it? I'm Mark Mayfield. All right, let's get a real insight as to where we stand today. What degree can we drop our guard or do as we perhaps that report from Mark Mayfield suggests continue to need to be vigilant? Joining me now is Professor John Schwartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus from University of California at Berkeley, Professor Emeriti Academy of the School of Public Health, Division of Infectious Diseases and Vaccinology. And as always, Professor Schwartzberg, thank you so much for taking some time with us. As I say, you almost from the declarations coming from the governor and the president and looking at things around us and day-to-day living almost seems as if the events of March of 2020 are a um, very old, dark memory. But is it time just yet to drop our guard? Thank you for asking me to, to join you this afternoon. Um, is it time to drop our guard? Well, Not entirely, no, but really there is good news. We have gone through really an unprecedented unprecedented time here in the United States uh, during this pandemic in terms of a low number of cases, relatively low number of serious cases over a relatively long period of time. You know, the last two winters, December and January especially, last three winters, uh, the first two were just terrible in terms of so many people hospitalized and so many dying. Over a million, over 1.1 million Americans aren't with us now. Um, This last winter, though, wasn't that bad. It was, um, we had a little bit of a surge, but not bad. And then February, March, April have been really pretty good. So things are different, and they're different in a very positive way. But if we drill down a little bit on that data, uh, when I say they're different, they're different in terms of we're still seeing a lot of people get COVID, but we're not seeing nearly as many people get hospitalized with it and dying. And that's what's really so positive. I can't tell you what's going to happen in a month or two months or six months, but I can tell you that these last few months have been much better than anything we've seen since this pandemic began. You know, there's some still startling and eye-popping numbers out there that since the beginning of the pandemic back in 2020, um, 6,800,000 that were alive back in January of 2020 are dead from COVID. And here in the United States alone, um, while we've seen a remarkable recovery, uh, that doesn't negate the fact that fully a third, 106 million Americans were exposed to COVID. And um, of that total number of cases, 1 million 100 plus thousand died from it. And so I suppose that, you know, the, the gravitas of all of this should by no means be negated. I guess the big question is, 
as we look at where we've been over this trajectory of the last um, three years and few months, in your opinion, Professor Schwartzberg, what has changed here? Is it a combination of some degree of humanity for those of us that have been exposed to it and survived, impact of the vaccinations, better habits when it comes to cleanliness, you know, exposure, things of that sort, or maybe a combination of all of that? A combination of all of that, yeah, plus the fact that we're dealing with Omicron, which, while it's the most transmissible of all of the variants of this virus, it appears to be less virulent, meaning it appears to make people a little little bit less sick than its predecessors. So when we talked, well, you mentioned um, immunity, and I think that's a really key. If we look at the American public right now, it's estimated that close to 97% of Americans have immunity to this virus to some degree. And that immunity has come either from the vaccine or from previously being infected or from a combination of those two. So just about everybody in the United States now has some degree of immunity to this. Three years ago, essentially nobody had immunity to this. We were all just very susceptible to this virus. So when you look at this background of immunity from infection or vaccine or a combination, and you deal, we're dealing with a virus right now that is a little less virulent, that combination of things really has set the stage for fewer hospitalizations and deaths. You use the phrase to some degree, which in my mind suggests that um, unlike other types of vaccinations, that uh, pretty much once we take the vaccine, we are um, protected for a lifetime. Uh, That certainly has been in the case, for example, with uh, certain types of measles, polio, uh, largely to the point where we've almost eradicated it on the planet, not entirely, but, but almost. So when you say to some degree, does that still mean that there is a degree of risk? And if so, what's the profile look like? People that are prone to respiratory illness, people with compromised immune systems, the elderly all of the above right thank you for emphasizing that to some degree um, unfortunately with this particular virus the immunity we developed against it either from previously being infected or from a vaccine is not permanent it wanes over time and that's why we see people getting COVID more than once It's the same story we see with the common cold where you get it more than once. These kind of infections, our immune system is very good at protecting us from getting really overwhelmingly sick, but it's not very good at preventing us from getting infected and getting mildly to moderately ill. So that's one of the real stumbling blocks we have here in terms of going forward. This virus is not gonna be going away anytime soon. It may be with us forever. And we have to develop vaccines that protect us, not just against hospitalization and death, which they're doing a very good job with now, but also protecting us for not months, but years and protecting us against getting infected and even getting mild disease. And those are the things we're working on now. In terms of a profile, we have a pretty good idea of the people who who don't handle this virus very well. 
and they are the largest group are people who are older, 50 and over, but especially 65 and over. If you look at who's hospitalized today and who's dying today, it's almost always in the people 65 and over group. The other people who, at any age, who are at high risk for hospitalization and death are people, as you mentioned, who are immunocompromised, are people who have chronic heart or lung problems, severe obesity, diabetes. So it's a large swath of the American population at any age are at increased risk. And that's why staying up to date with the vaccines is so critical for those groups. Is there also perhaps a warning message here, Professor Schwartzberg? And I pose that question because uh, many of us know people that have experienced COVID and got through it okay. Perhaps like myself, they were vaccinated. And so as a result, symptoms over the course of the COVID experience seemed to be, while irritating, and nevertheless relatively mild, meaning it was not necessary to be hospitalized. There were never any severe uh, respiratory um, challenges that need to be addressed. But I have to wonder whether or not it is dangerous to be cavalier about this in the sense that, well, I've had it before, no big deal. If I get it again, I'll get over it again. Uh, the medical community has really exaggerated the impact of this, and we know that there are people, even in the face of, of hard, cold facts, still wish to live kind of in that, that safe place of, of um, fantasy land in their head, denying the reality, and this is my question, of the, the cumulative impact of repeat exposure to COVID and the fact that you know, I suppose to a great degree, the one thing that's going to tell us whether or not we have much to be worried about here is going to be time. But I guess none of us want to necessarily, if we are thinking is on straight, want to be the person who proves the point by being cavalier, being exposed to COVID repeatedly. And I have to wonder about the potential impact of the cumulative exposure. We hear of things such as so-called long COVID. Talk to that point, if you would, please. Of course. And I, you're, this is a terribly important point. I, I'm over 65, so I'm in the high-risk group. So I, I'm very diligent about staying up to date with my vaccinations, and I'm still very careful when I go into the grocery store, I wear a mask still. Um, and I try to avoid large crowds indoors and so on. But I don't worry very much about winding up in the hospital and dying because I'm up to date with my vaccines and because I have access to good medical care, including the medications that we have today to really stop this infection from getting really serious. And the primary medication is called Paxlovid, which I'm sure most of your listeners have heard about. So between vaccines and having access to Paxlovid, I think the chances of my dying from COVID are extremely small. But I worry about long COVID. This occurs probably, we don't know exactly what percentage it is, but the number that I think is most accurate is around 5% of people who get COVID wind up getting long COVID, which is a persistence of symptoms beyond three months. And it can be devastating to some people. For some people, it's they're a little more tired than they used to be. But for some other people, they can't even get out of bed. Cognitively, their brains don't work as well. And there's a long, long laundry list of complications people with long COVID get. So what I don't, I don't worry, as I said, about being hospitalized and dying because I know what to do to prevent that. 
but I do worry about developing long COVID. I want to take a time out. We're visiting today with Professor John Schwartzberg. He is a clinical professor emeritus at UC Berkeley, Professor Emeriti Academy, the School of Public Health Division of Infectious Diseases and Vaccinology. We are talking about the state of COVID today. Yes, as I mentioned at the onset, um, the president has declared that the current state of emergency will cease related to COVID come May 11th in California. The state-level declaration ended February the 28th. But as we've suggested, that doesn't necessarily mean you can let your guard down and go la-di-da about your business because COVID is still with us. When we come back, is there the potentiality of a different, more violent strain of COVID cropping up that could bring us back to where we were three years ago? That and more as our conversation with Professor John Schwartzberg continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Professor John Schwartzberg with us tonight. We are talking about the current state of COVID. Professor Schwartzberg, I'm curious, as much as we've talked about what seems to be as COVID has morphed, it seems to be lessening in severity, although perhaps the degree to which it is communicable has uh, has remained pretty steadfast. Um, could this, though, potentially morph into something more severe? Could another strain, could, could COVID-20 come along and give us a big wallop? Well, I'm not very good at predicting the future. And COVID has really humbled me greatly in terms of trying to understand what it's going to be doing in the future. Um, we've repeatedly been burned with this virus being able to change itself and be and cause more infection and more more devastation in the human population. Again, though, we haven't seen that in the last year and almost year and a half now. Omicron and its subvariants have been the it's been the only circulating uh, variant of this virus of of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID, and this is something we haven't seen. So. We were in a period of time pretty long now where we're just dealing with one variant, but will tomorrow bring a new variant that transmits better, that makes us sicker? There's no one who can answer that, but I'm hopeful that that won't be the case. And I think right now, hope is very important. You just said something that I want to underscore as our conversation winds down, Professor Schwartzberg. You admitted that you're not very good at predicting the future. And, you know, I think about the road that we've all been down together collectively over the last three years and various times in which, as name the agency, the CDC, the WHO, healthcare professionals, hospitals, schools, on and on the list goes, as they have attempted to try and predict what's going to happen next, predict severity, predict spread, predict the impact, um, have attempted another means, a number of means of trying to address, mitigate, um, and as best protect the public um, from potential illness, even to the point of loss of life, as we sit here with over a million Americans dead since March of 2020. And I just wonder from your professional opinion, we have heard certainly in various aspects of the media, absolute vilification of people like Dr. Fauci, the CDC, the way schools handled all of this. And I wonder if maybe 
part of the issue is we've been so fortunate with the quality of health care in America. To be sure, we have our problems. But overall, arguably the best health care system on the planet. And we're so used to take this pill, get this operation, everything will be fine, life will go on as if nothing ever happened, that maybe we have put such false and unreasonable expectations on our health care system that we've anticipated that, well, certainly Fauci can predict with 100% accuracy where this is going to go. I mean, even to the point of people getting into massive arguments in public over things like face mask using, which, I don't know, by, by my observation, every time I've been in the hospital and I've been in an operating room. The doctors and nurses all wore face masks, so I figure they're not doing it just because they want to hide their identity. Speak to that issue, if you would, please, in terms of of just how unfair some have been in in responding to those healthcare professionals that have simply tried to respond in the best way they knew how with limited information and that inability to predict the predict the future to help protect us from this thing. Well, I think the operative word here is humility. I think we all have to be very humble about how we've dealt with this pandemic. Remember, this virus didn't exist in the human population prior to November of 2019. And we've learned a great deal about it. And we've certainly, every one of us has made mistakes. We've done the best that we can, given our science, but we were dealing with something brand new and clearly mistakes were made. They were made by the best of us. But we did them with the best of intentions too. And I think we'll learn a lot looking back at what are some of the things we could have done a lot better. And we'll learn a lot looking back at what are some of the things that we did were quite well. But we need to be humble about how we addressed this pandemic as professionals, but also as as citizens here in this country, we need to have a great deal of humility. And I think that that sometimes gets lost. There is one other thing that I think we need to recognize, and that is that while we have some of the best medical care in the world in the United States, a lot of Americans don't have access to it. And that's the same group that had the highest morbidity and mortality from this virus. And one of the important lessons that I think we have to take home is that we need to find, to develop a, a health care system that's going to be inclusive of all of us because we're all in the same boat. Final question for you, and I think I can somewhat anticipate, Professor, your, your answer to this. There has been much made about trying to ascertain the origins of this with the notion that if we understand how and where it started, we might be able to prevent something like this from happening again in the future. Barring 100% transparency by the government in Beijing, which I don't think is ever going to happen, um, but barring that transparency, do you think there's ever any way that we're going to know whether or not this slipped out of a lab by accident or on purpose or was at a wet market in Wuhan? Do you think we'll ever know? I think it's unlikely. Um, even even with uh, China being much more forthcoming with the data, I think it's unlikely we're going to ever know with certainty. And maybe that's not the question. Maybe the question is, we know with certainty that something terrible happened in November of 2020 and 2019. A new virus entered the human population. 
This is the fourth pandemic we've had in the 21st century. Roughly every five years, we're seeing an organism escape into the entire population of the planet. This is going to continue. And I think what we need to, the take home message is, regardless of how this virus escaped and got into the human population, we have to address every possible way that it did and to find ways to prevent that from happening in the future. And clearly toward that end, we all need to play our part. So in the end, I realize that there are aspects of this that seems to be politically charged, differences of opinion, who do you trust, on and on the list goes in terms of what shapes our viewpoints and opinions. But I think to the core of Professor Schwartzberg's comment about humility, and that is in the end, to demonstrate the degree of humility and caring for one another, realizing that this is not your problem or their problem, it's our problem. And the more that we can do to look after one another, even if it means to be inconvenienced. I mean, I, do I like wearing face masks? Absolutely not. As a kid dealing with allergies, and if you're an allergy sufferer, you know these are fun days right now with a super bloom here in California. Uh, I, I frequently had to wear a face mask if I was exposed to dust or pollen or mowing the lawn. Hate to wear the stuff. But you know, the answer of whether or not I'm my brother's keeper if I think wearing a face mask might have any degree of chance of reducing the risk that I would pose to someone else being infected by COVID and unawares, or worse yet, passing on something to an elderly friend or family member who could die from it, then I think erring on the side of humility is always the best choice. Professor John Schwartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus, UC Berkeley, Professor Emeriti Academy, School of Public Health, Division of Infectious Diseases and Vaccinology. As always, Professor, we appreciate your time and your candor and your professional insights on this very important topic. Professor John Schwartzberg. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.